6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30 through chapter 31, verse 30. If you were going to pick a portion of Jeremiah if you uh, to, to dig into, chapters 30 through 33 are, in the minds of many scholars, the high point of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, a little background for any of you that might be new with this. Jeremiah is regarded as one of the holiest, most spiritual men of the Old Testament. That may come as a shock, but he has just held an incredibly high regard, and the more you get to know the man, the more, uh, frankly, am amazing it is that his book is not more widely studied. Superficially, it's pretty heavy. Well, it is pretty heavy, but I mean, superficially, that's what many people, that's all they see. There's much in here that uh, is uh, exciting, uh, revealing, uh, 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 far beyond the very heavy message that he had where he had to Describe to his nation that God was going to judge it and take it into captivity, and God was going to use the instruments as instruments, their enemies, namely the Babylonians. And of course, much of the book has and will continue to be dealing with that subject. However, in these four chapters, chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33, they collectively stand alone, stand apart. The message, the tone, the depth, uh, many things about them will be quite different. Some scholars call these four chapters the Book of Consolation. Now, I might mention that at the time that this is written, Jerusalem is in the final period of an 18-month siege. In the 10th year of Zedekiah, the Babylonians are, have laid siege. The abortive alliance with Egypt was, uh, failed, as Jeremiah predicted it would. Um, but in any case, the Babylonians are, are, are laying siege. Jeremiah himself, because of the popularity of his message that we've covered in the past, is where you might expect him in prison. His views were regarded as treasonous. He was telling the Jerusalem that the, Babyl the Babylonians were God's instrument, that they should yield, that God has raised them up, not to get into these foolish attempts to thwart God's purpose, because he, his servant, strange phrase, of Nebuchadnezzar, was going to prevail. And so uh, that's the that's the that's the the setting of the message we have. You know, Jeremiah seems kind of a contrarian when when all the false prophets were saying, "Hey, the Lord's going to deliver us," just like he did Hezekiah and all that sort of thing. Jeremiah says, "No, you got it wrong," and uh, and of course his predictions proved correct. Now at the point when they're in their darkest hour, there's famine and disease widespread in the city. Jeremiah himself is in prison you would think that's when he would get really gloomy, right? Well, Jeremiah is always a surprise in, in, in this, uh, quite in contrast to his threatening doom and gloom and all of that that we've been through. Jeremiah, God here speaks to Jeremiah to predict a glorious future for Israel and for you and I. So the, you can be prepared for a shift of gears. In the passages to follow, Jeremiah is going to assure them 
that Israel is permanent, forever. Now, you and I take that sort of for granted, but that's a remarkable thing for God to be telling through Jeremiah at a time when not only was the nation in peril, but God predicted they were going to be made slaves. Good news is, though, it'll last 70 years and they're going to come back. And more importantly, that forever Israel was to endure. Now, that what makes that even more remarkable is the organized, systematic attempts by one political power after another through thousands of years have tried to make that untrue, have tried to wipe out Israel. And uh, the Nazis did not invent the idea. That really went back a long time ago. The Egyptians and Herod and a lot of other people took a crack at it. And every nation that tried to do that get destroyed. Those nations which favor Israel, the Greeks, the Persians, are interestingly enough still around. So that's kind of provocative. God blesses those that bless Israel and curses those that injure Israel. And that has been true throughout history. But in any case, God here is going to describe that Israel will be permanent. He also is going to predict the coming of the Gentiles to the truth. That's not a popular, normal theme in the Old Testament, but we're going to see it very vividly emerge here. This isn't the only place, but it's one of the places that's most conspicuous. Um, we're going to see the institution of God's new covenant for redemption. In fact, that's going to preoccupy a certain portion of our time, and it's actually the concept by which the New Testament gets its name, although we're going to try to make some distinctions between the new covenant here and the way it's sometimes applied. Not inappropriately, but there's some bridges you need to understand how to cross to get there. And we're also going to find that there's going to, there's, that God here predicts the rule of a Davidic king from a cleansed Zion. Strange idea that there's actually going to be the Davidic throne reestablished on the planet Earth in Jerusalem. And while it may sound like a strange thing in, uh, in, in uh, Jeremiah, let me remind you, it was the very specific promise that Gabriel gave Mary when he announced the virgin births of Jesus Christ. So all these ideas are going to emerge in this passage, which leads you to one footnote in your notes. Jeremiah was not a pessimist. You can read so much of his book in which he has this heavy anxiety on behalf of his, of his nation, but you should recognize he's not a pessimist. In fact, he's an incredible optimist. We're going to have a lot uh, coming on here. Now, uh, one of the main things that you need to get grasp of biblically is to recognize that there is, in the Bible horizon, a literal Israel forever. We're going to talk a lot of, about a lot of subjects tonight, but don't ever let anyone confuse you about the distinction between Israel and the church. Israel specifically is prophesied to be forever, to rule from the—there uh, will be a ruler from the throne of David or on the planet Earth. God will use Israel once again, yet future, to accomplish his purposes. There is a hiatus, an interval, a strange era that you and I take for granted called the church age. You want to understand that there's—it's important to keep those two concepts separately. If you don't, you'll never understand Matthew 24 and 25. You'll never—you need to read Romans 11. And uh, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, depend on understanding the notion of a literal Israel as distinct from the church. Now, in this session particularly, it's going to get uh, a, little, a little confused. Um, now, there's much to talk about, but the best way, I think, to do this is to, is to, uh, to jump right in. 
Uh, oh, one other thought, just so you don't misunderstand me. These ideas that we're going to encounter in these four chapters will not be, are not unique in this portion of the Jeremiah. These same ideas are hinted at in chapters 2, 3, 16, 23, and 24. So there are passages, typically three, four, or five verses long, in several places in the book that these same ideas are there, but not so crystallized or so vivid or so dynamic as here presented. Let's jump in. Chapter 30, verse 1. Oh, by the way, one other thing I often forget to tell you. <laughs> top of your notepad, Acts 17.11. On the top of your notepad, put Acts 17.11, where Luke tells you not to believe a thing Chuck Mister tells you, but that you are to receive the word with all readiness of mind, but search the scriptures daily to prove whether these things are so. And no more, nowhere is this more important than the passage we're going to go in, because there's you're going to have all kinds of opportunity to misunderstand, confuse, and muddle it up a little bit. Don't let anybody sell you any glib cliches about Israel or the church or their relationship. Those are very important ideas, and you really want to search the Scriptures carefully on your own. But jumping in again, chapter 30, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write all the words which I have spoken unto thee in a book. And that's where some scholars treat this four chapters as a unit and call it the book of consolation. It's a, it's a integral chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. Those four chapters hang together as, as, as a book. And uh, we'll, go, we'll try to, on the one hand, not get bogged down in all the richness of detail, and yet at the same time not be too cursory about it either. So we'll take it as it comes. Verse uh, 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord. Now let me pause there. That's a formula in the Hebrew that should alert you to the fact that this is eschatological, that is end-time stuff. There are several phrases in the Hebrew which, if, as the more you become uh, immersed in Old Testament passages, the more those phrases will trigger a particular style or emphasis, and you'll discover that the day of the Lord is one of those phrases. Lo, the days come, saith the Lord. Those terms, if you, as you get sensitive to God's style, you'll recognize that's the Holy Spirit's way of sort of flagging you that, by the way, this isn't necessarily going to happen the next 90 days or a year or two, guys. It's end-time stuff. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, or the actual Hebrew says turn again, or almost reverse, if you will, the captivity of the people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. Now notice he's speaking of his people, and the people are specifically the whole nation. The term Israel here refers to the northern kingdom as opposed to the southern kingdom. And you'll hear people talk about the ten tribes and two tribes and all that stuff. I'm going to try not to use that phrase, because that leads to a myth of the so-called ten lost tribes. Not so. The northern kingdom, after the, after the civil war, after Solomon died, the civil war that divided the nation into two halves, the northern kingdom was named Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. The northern kingdom involved the territories that are associated with ten tribes, but don't assume the ten tribes stayed there. Because of the move to idolatry in the north, the faithful migrated south. Judah had its problems later, and then a hundred years later, we're seeing they're going to go into captivity too. However, there was a period of time there under Josiah and others where Judah was the place that if you were faithful, you migrated to. The, tr the house of Judah was really two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, 
some of them. But don't don't get too territorial about that. There's a southern northern kingdom called Israel and Judah. When you use the term Israel denotatively, you mean the northern kingdom. When you use the term Israel connotatively, the whole nation, you can include both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But here, to make it clear, he's talking about the whole nation by mentioning both houses. I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. Now, what's remarkable about this? Israel went into captivity a hundred years earlier in the, to the, uh, by the Assyrians. Okay? Where, are the, where is the northern ten tribes at the time this is written? In slavery. Where? In Assyria? No, in Babylon. Why? Because the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. And guess what they picked up? They're slaves. Now, we don't normally think of that. The people who try to sell you theology based on the lost ten tribes, because there's a whole bunch of bizarre ideas that emerge out of that kind of um, viewpoint. Just be alert that that's uh, not necessarily biblical. And I'll, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, other than to alert you that there is some peculiar heresies that emerge out of the uh, the so-called British Israelism and all that stuff. This passage is directed to Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man doth travail with a child. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Now, he is speaking here of terror, of anguish, analogous to childbirth, but not limited to women having children. It's a figure of speech he's using. Now, I might mention that the concept of terror and anguish being spoken of as travail occurs how many times in the book of Jeremiah? Make a guess. Seven, right on target. Isn't that interesting? You must have peaked. 431, 624, 1324, 2223, 30 verse 6, 4924, 50 verses 43. So if you want to check them, you can either write fast or get the tape. Okay. okay. But this idiom of travail is seven times used in Jeremiah. I'm always intrigued by that because it shows the architecture and the design by the Holy Spirit. I really don't believe Jeremiah checked his manuscript and made sure there were seven, especially since he didn't do it, Baruch did, and others helped. So it's, a, it's a, an accident. But you know the word accident is not a kosher word. The Holy Spirit is watching over that and designing it. And so when there's seven there, you see his fingerprint. Now, it's interesting that the Lord himself in Matthew 24 and 25, speaking of this period, says all these things are the beginnings of sorrows in the King James, what he actually says is the beginning of birth pangs. So none other than the Lord himself uses that phrase to speak of this. Now in Matthew 24 and 25, the famous passage that deals with this, Jesus also says there would come a time of trouble such the as the world had never seen up to that time nor ever would see again. Right? Remember that? And he quotes there from Daniel 12, the phrase he uses is from Daniel chapter 12. And from the Lord's quote of Daniel 12 comes the label that we apply to that period of time called the Great Tribulation. That word is misleading because it sounds like everybody's equal. Here in the next verse, Holy Spirit gives it another label that is more specific. Verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, 
so that that none is like it. Sound familiar? You bet. Even the time of whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. In that verse, there's a tremendous amount of insight. Those of you that are students of prophecy and are familiar with the 70-week prophecy of Daniel know that there's a period of time well prophesied upon the planet Earth that's going to be approximately seven years long. The 70th week of years of Daniel's famous prophecy in the end of Daniel chapter 9 that Gabriel gave him. The, the amplification of that week is in part described in Matthew 24 and 25 when four of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, came to him secretly, and they got a private briefing that goes two chapters long, Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and 22, and Mark 13 and 14. The amplification that week also constitutes chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation. That's basically an expansion of what goes on in this very bizarre seven-year period. In the middle of that seven-year period, there's going to be a particular political event, and it's the last half of that week that's actually the Great Tribulation. We often glibly call it the seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. That's technically clumsy, because the Great Tribulation is the last half of that week. It's three and a half years long. And there's more prophecy specifically enumerating and timing that week than any other period in, in, of time in the Bible. 42 months, three and a half years, half of a week, on it goes. There's lots of ways. Now, here it points out that the focus of the Great Tribulation is whom? Israel. Is whom? I said that wrong. Anyway, sorry about that. I, I, I drive grammarians. Terrible. If there's any evidence that I have an engineering background, it's my terrible grammar. So, no, was it before I went to college, I couldn't spell engineering. Now I are one, huh? Or something. Anyway. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. The focus of the Great Tribulation is none other than Israel. And we need, we're going to talk more about that as we go. Um, we see the hint of Daniel 12 and Christ's quote here where it says, None is like it. None is like it. From here, we could go into a whole study of that period. And I'm mentally trying to figure out what to extract, because I really want to take you through a whole study of the Great Tribulation tonight, or we'll really get derailed on the one hand. On the other hand, there are certain portions that you should know. Let's take a couple of things, though. Let's just zip through and pick up some stuff. Um, you might, uh, let's be, before we leave Jeremiah, let's peek ahead and look at Jeremiah 46, verse 10. For this is the day of the Lord of the God of, Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries, and the sword shall devour and shall be filled to the full and made drunk with their blood. And the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates, and on it goes. Uh, turn with me to Daniel 12. We're just going to zip through and pick up a few verses and then summarize. Daniel chapter 12, I made reference to it earlier, but let's just take a, a, a quick look at it. Daniel chapter 12, the first verse and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince. What's Now, there's three, three archangels mentioned in the Scripture. Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. Good for you. Okay. Uh, one of them got himself in a lot of trouble. Um, Michael, Gabriel is always mentioned in a messianic way. 
Gabriel gives Daniel the 70-week prophecy. Gabriel's the one that announces to Mary and so on. Gabriel's always a messianic. He seems to have a job description. We infer from what we see that he had a job description that has to do with the Messiah. Michael has a very unique role. He is the warrior. He's always in charge of an army fighting on behalf of whom? Israel, right. And here we see it. That shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. And the context here in Daniel is clearly Israel. You can broaden that conceptually if you like. And I'd be the last to argue that Michael isn't on our side, but his main role is Israel. And he says, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. We could talk about books, but I won't get in that. You can presume for your purposes the book of life. It may, If it ain't, it's equivalent. I won't get into those details now. But notice this expression. There's a time of trouble that, uh, yeah, that uh, such was never since there was a nation. A nation of what? Nation Israel. Until that time. That time is yet future, isn't it? I have very grim news for you. I don't know if you don't see it very often now, but you may used to see a little sticker on bumpers, never again. It was a plea by the Israelis that never again will be there or there be a holocaust. That's not scriptural. The book of Jeremiah, the book of Daniel, Matthew 24, and others say, despite the horrors, the incredible, awesome horrors that occurred in Germany, during the 30s and early 40s. Apparently, if we understand the Scripture correctly, there is a time coming it's going to be worse. How do I know? Because it says there will this, this period is yet future, and it's going to be a time of trouble, such as was never since there was a nation. Of all the pain and suffering and abuse and what have you that Israel has gone through in generations, 2,000 years worth, there is a time that's going to come and it's even worse. That's the bad news. The good news is they will be delivered out of it. Oh, you could, we could go to Isaiah 2 and 13 and 34 and Ezekiel 30 and lots of other places. It might be worth hitting Matthew 24. And we'll just pick up out of these many verses. We'll grab verse um, 21. Bear in mind, verse 15 announces the middle of the week or the beginning of the period when the, therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. And it says, Whosoever reads, let him understand. That technical prophecy I think we've covered before, and we'll come across it again, Trigger. it's an event that demarks the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period. The last three and a half years then ensue, and, and the Lord goes on to describe how urgent it is that they flee. Why? Because verse 21 says, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. That period of trouble is the worst. Now, you will find passages that imply that it's worldwide. I'm not denying that, but its focus is Israel. Why? Complicated question. One view is, is that from some passages in the Old Testament, one can defend the argument that before the Messiah comes back to redeem them, they have to repent of their sin and ask him back. And the, re the remnant does that. Their prayer is described in Hosea 5 and 6. 
If you're interested in this development, it's an interesting line of reasoning, not necessarily correct, but in provocative. We, I think, covered that when we did uh, in, the, in our study of Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. It comes up and we deal with this view. A preceding condition to the return, the return power of the Lord Jesus Christ is a petition of the remnant, which means that Satan's strategy is to destroy the remnant. And I mean Satan's uh, intense attack on Israel is specifically trying to get at the believing remnant in Israel to prevent that from happening. And as you get into that line of thinking, it is interesting because there are some scriptures that seem to suggest that. And secondly, it also helps explain why he is so intensely malevolent towards Israel. You want to know the source of anti-Semitism? All prejudice uh, and, and abuse of minorities or whatever are ungodly and are inappropriate from a humanitarian plus many other points of view. But anti-Semitism is specifically occultic, satanic, and intended in the, in, the, in, the, in the ambitions of Satan to thwart God's purpose in a very specific way. Different kind of thing. Um, and if you're interested in that subject, I recommend to you the tapes on Revelation chapter 12. We developed that whole idea when we developed the, uh, the background of Revelation chapter 12. So the tapes that on that subject may uh, help you, you know, illuminate that whole issue. Boy, it goes on. It's hard to take this subject without getting into a thousand byroads. Uh, Zechariah 12, chapter 12 and chapter 14 are rich in this area. We won't take the time now to get into that because I think we'll get totally derailed. But do you notice that Jacob will go through that period but be saved out of it? Okay? I can't, I can't touch upon the subject without highlighting Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. For lots of reasons that go far beyond our time here today, I am thoroughly convinced from my own study of the Scripture that the, the, that the Lord's dealing with the church and with Israel are almost mutually exclusive. I don't believe the 70th week of Daniel can even start while the church is on the earth. I happen to be one of those who believes what's called technically a pre-trib rapture. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.